0: A number of people have shared, uh, a number of you have shared this story with me, so I know a lot of you have heard it. But there's the old uh, story that tells about how a pastor was giving a tour to a Boy Scout troop years ago, and he was giving them a tour of the church building, and as he took them through the different places, they eventually made their way back to the lobby, where one of the Boy Scouts noticed this large plaque with a list of names on it. So he pointed to it and asked the pastor, he says, what are all those names on that plaque? And he says, oh, those are people that died in the service. And the Boy Scout raised his hand and he said, which one, 9.30 or 11? (laughs) Sometimes that's what we think about Christianity, church, God, is that it kills people. And that really it's anything but something of joy. And so today... Uh, As we continue our series in the life of Christ, we're making our way through the gospel of Luke. We come to the last part of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles out uh, to that section of Scripture. And if you didn't bring your Bibles with you, uh, hopefully we have a black Bible in the seat rack nearby, either in front of you or behind you. And you can turn to page 719, and you'll be right there. We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 33 through chapter 6, verse 11 today. And those 18 verses, as we make our way through, um, we're going to see several things about how Jesus interacts with people uh, that have questions. Now, here's what I want you to see. Um, In that first line of the notes there, if you can multitask, Jesus is questioned about fasting and keeping the Sabbath. Jesus is questioned about fasting and keeping the Sabbath. And as we've been learning, he's not being questioned with a gracious spirit. He's being questioned with a critical eye, a critical spirit. Some of the religious leaders do not like his way. So Jesus is getting questioned a lot that way. Now, as soon as I say it's about fasting and the Sabbath, some of you are saying, I may die in this service. Because, man, that sounds like really thrilling stuff. Like, I practically jumped out of bed to hear you teach on that today, Jeff, as we study this part of Scripture. And I know that that sounds, again, like something that's completely disconnected from where most of us live. But I hope that by the time you walk to your car today, you're going to actually see the connection. And you're going to be glad that these people, even though they did it from the wrong motives, questioned Jesus about fasting and the Sabbath. You see, one of the things is that these people had become caught up with religion, dead religion, and Jesus came to show them something different. If you're following along in the notes, he says that he's come to offer a completely new way to live. That's what he's going to lay before them today. That's what he's going to invite them into. That's what he invites every person into is a new way to live. In fact, I circled the word new in my notes there because that's the word that comes from this text. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is unlike any other religion in the world. That's not just a pastor trying to keep job security. Friends, there is no other religion that even compares to what Christianity is like. Religion is based on man men and women, human beings reaching up to God in order to gain his love and approval and acceptance. Christianity on their hand is about God sending his one and only son to reach down to us before we ever deserved it or even interested in order that he might make possible through his sacrificial death in our place a relationship with God to restore that relationship. Completely different. Religion's about reaching up. Christianity is God reaching down to us unbelievable. And Jesus teaches this new way and he brings this, and it really, it bewilders a lot of the people, the religious people of his day. So I want to look at this text. And before we look at it, you'll see the outline there. You'll see that he's questioned about fasting in verses 5, chapter 5, verses 33. By the way, there's a typo there. Can you help me out? It's not verse 38. It's through verse 39. And then also he's questioned about the Sabbath in chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. And uh, As we see this here, here's here's why you may be wondering, like, why do I need this message? I'll just tell you why I need this message is because sometimes I still fall back into religion. Sometimes after starting down the road with Jesus, I all of a sudden find myself falling into the same habits and the same patterns that some of these critics of Jesus fell back into. I'd love to say they were just jerks that weren't like me, but I, I see myself in some of their patterns and some of their questions and some of their ways. So Jesus wants to teach us a different way. And because of that, I think you'll find hope and courage in this message today if that's where you find yourself too. So we're gonna look at these verses in just a second, but let me uh, pray and then we'll, we'll unpack them, okay? Lord, every time... I have the privilege of teaching. I try and remember this definitely isn't about me. This isn't about giving a good message. This isn't about performance. This is about you and how much you care about every person in this room. And I pray that you would be our teacher. I need what you have to say as much as any other person in this room, but I pray that I'll be thoughtful and teach in such a way that it might benefit every person in this room in some way. So meet us here, Lord. And because you're not dead, because you're not in a tomb in Jerusalem, but you're very much alive, I pray that you would show yourself powerful in many people's lives today. For your sake and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so let's read this passage. And then what I want to ask you to do, even if you don't use the notes, if you can be ready to read off the notes, those two gray boxes list. So, like in chapter 5, verses 37 through 38, when we come to that, would you read that with me out loud? And then we come to chapter 6, would you be ready to read verse 5 with me out loud? And I've listed it in the notes so we can all read off the same translation together with full voice. Let's go. Verse 33. They said to him, These are the religious leaders now that have been criticizing him earlier in the chapter. He said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. That's John the Baptist's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders. But yours go on eating and drinking. Now let me just pause. Verse 33 here is related to what's just been happening. Last week, Steve taught on Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector, and how he held a banquet, a feast, after he came to follow Jesus. And it was a time of great joy, Because not only was Matthew now following Jesus, but he was introducing his friends to the possibility of following Jesus too. And the religious leaders were ticked off that Jesus would hang out with people like that. The idea here is in verse 33 is evidently that conversation is still going on. The questioning continues from what happened earlier. They're probably still around Matthew's house. Verse 34, Jesus answered. Notice the answer is with a question. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, would you read verse 37 and 38 with me, please? And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now we come to how Jesus' is questioned about the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Can you picture this? Some of the Pharisees asked... Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Now read verse 5 with me if you would, please. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Let me just pause here. In verse 6 there, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel also record this same event. Luke, the doctor, is the only one that makes note that it was the man's right hand. Interesting detail. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, notice this is another question. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. That idea here is pathological rage. And began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew's gospel says they started making plans to kill him. So let's go back to the beginning there where we looked at the last few verses in chapter 5. And see where Jesus' question about fasting. Again, this is in Matthew 9 and Mark 2. But fasting, what is fasting? By the way, before I do that, let me just say something. I don't have time today to go into a whole message on fasting or a whole message on the Sabbath. They're worthy of our attention, and we've taught about them before. So I want to put this on the screen. You may want to write these down, and I'll try and say them out loud so those of you that are listening online can also know A few years ago, Pastor Steve did a great message on fasting and what the purpose of it is. And that was February 23rd, 2014. Following week, I talked about how to fast. And uh, that's March 2nd, 2014. Now, if you go to our website, cherryhillsfamily.org, you can just click under the message archive and find these messages if you want to listen more about these. Some of you have told us this helps you when you think about actually practicing or understanding from a New Testament perspective rather than just an Old Testament one. Also, Brian Schwarberg did an amazing message on the Sabbath during our Ten Commandments series back in 2013, October 6th. I heard somebody even this last month talking about how that message is still helping them think about the Sabbath to this day. And so I just mentioned those to you because, again, those may be a, a way to supplement anything I'm saying today in case this is incomplete for you. So fasting, what does it mean? <clears throat> if you're following along, here's just a basic definition that most people would give. It means giving up food for a time to draw closer to God. It means going without food or giving up food for a purpose, a spiritual purpose, a way of feasting on God, focusing on him, saying you're more important to me right now than food. I want you, I hunger for you more than I hunger for food. And so people did that. And God actually commands people to do this one day a year on the day of atonement. It's the only time he commands it to be done. And in the new Testament, it's never commanded, but it's definitely invited and and implied. So, What happened, though, is that while this was meant to be a discipline of grace, a means of letting more of God into our lives, actually it got turned into something different. If you're following along, notice that Jesus' critics had turned it into a proof and a performance. Jesus' critics, these religious leaders, had actually turned it into, with all of their man-made rules and all of their Uh, different ways of thinking about this they turned it into a proof and a performance but what do I mean Jesus spoke to this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 16 through 18 and uh, he knew what happened is is that the religious leaders fasted on Monday and Thursday so there's a good chance that this banquet that happened at Matthew's party happened on a Monday or Thursday because they're eating it up they're drinking it up they're having a good time celebrating and that the the religious leaders are saying, how come you're eating and drinking while we're fasting? That You're out of step with God's heart. <clears throat> so Jesus knew that a lot of times they chose Monday and Thursday because that happened to be the busiest time in the marketplace. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That means that you could literally walk around the marketplace. In fact, a lot of times they actually put more white stuff on their face so that people could tell how miserable they were. Say, look at how much I'm suffering for God. I mean, see, it's just this whole spirit that had risen up. And a lot of us, seriously, we think that unless you're really, really, you know, uh, sad and mourning and grieving all the time, you're probably not obeying God. Some of us, uh, I once heard a guy describe Christians as, some Christians as those that have been baptized in lemon juice or weaned on a pickle. (laughs) Do you get the idea? Sometimes we just look like, I hope God's pleased with how uncomfortable and how, you know, unhappy I am right now. No, that's not the idea. So Jesus knew that they did it for show. They did it. They didn't go, look at me. God, I'm proving myself to you by my self-justifying efforts here. So he says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. They're play acting for they try to look miserable and disheveled to people so that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth. That is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, and wash your face, then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father, who knows what you do in private, and your father, who sees everything, will reward you. He says, You guys have have turned it into something different. You're grandstanding. That was never meant. That's not about God. That's about you. That's about other people. That's not about God. So, Notice that Jesus, when they ask him why his disciples don't fast in the same way that they do, Jesus replies with three pictures, if you're following along in the notes. And actually, the truth is, he replies with a question and uses one of those pictures. But he replies with three pictures. Here they are. You ready? Bridegroom, clothing, wineskins. Bridegroom, clothing, wineskins. Notice what he does in verse 34. He answers their question with a question uh, or their observation He says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, most of us go, you just lost me, Jesus. I have like, why, why are you bringing up bridegroom? Many Jewish people felt like the Messiah, when he came back, would usher in the wedding feast of the Messiah. So for them, they couldn't think of anything more joyful than a wedding feast. You see, we think wedding ceremonies are a big deal here. But in those days, when a couple got married, let me read to you what one scholar says. He says this. He says, A newly married Jewish couple did not honeymoon, but stayed home for a week-long open house during which there was continual feasting and celebrating. The bride and groom were treated like king and queen that week, Sometimes they even wore crowns. It was the week of their life. They'd never forget. They were attended by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom. These wedding guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling that said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. Why? Because fasting had been associated with mourning, grief, sadness, somberness. And so what happened is is they they would celebrate for a week. The joy factor was sky high. And what Jesus is saying is, you guys, the way you're going about this stuff with God, it's depressing. You're actually turning fasting into something that God never ultimately intended. Yes, there's times to fast and humble ourselves, but that's so that he can restore us. There's times that we can know we fast in order to know him more deeply with a greater depth of joy and gratitude. And so he says, you lost all that. You've lost all that. And so what do we think of when we think of the bridegroom? For some of us, this is tricky, especially us guys, because we're not easily able to mess around with male and female metaphors like that. But here's what I want you to see. Bridegroom stands for the idea that God wants to have an intimate relationship with us that can only be described like a really, really, really good marriage. So intimate Such a sharing of life together, such a freedom, such a closeness that it is like that. And some of us go, well, like the thought of like Jesus being my bridegroom is a little bit like scary for me here. Here's the deal. Whether you're married or unhappily married, whether you're divorced or widowed or single or not sure if you'll ever get married, here's what God wants you to know today. God set his heart on you. God cares about you and he doesn't want a religious thing with you. He wants a relationship with you that is so close that there is nothing you can't share with him and nothing that he doesn't want to share with you. He is the bridegroom we've been waiting for. He is that relationship that alone will satisfy our greatest hunger for love and acceptance. But notice what else he says here. He says, so are you going to make the friends of the bridegroom fast? Like you guys like are totally out of touch. What he's saying is, I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. Don't miss me. You're so busy looking at all your list list and rules. You're going to miss me. Don't miss me. God sent me for you. But they were missing him. But then notice what he says in verse 35. He says, but there's going to come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And then they will fast. Why? Because if you understand fasting is time of grieving, I'll tell you, there's going to come a time of grieving. It won't last real long, but it will happen. And what is he referring to? Being taken away. The verb there means a violent taking away. Jesus would have to be taken away to the mountain known as Calvary, where his back would be laid on a cross And he would become the sacrificial, perfect sacrifice offered in our place to make us right with God. And he had to be crushed in order for us to know this relationship with God. He had to experience being forsaken so we would never be forsaken by the bridegroom. Praise the Lord. What a savior. What a bridegroom. But he doesn't just talk about that. Notice he goes on if you're following along. He talks about clothing. He says, Look, let me give you another one. He says, I've come to bring a new kind of life, and you guys are still hung up on the old way of religion. He says, Let me just give you an example. If you were to try and take what I'm offering you and try and connect it to what you're trying to do, it'll never work. He says, It's like taking a new piece of clothing cutting out a patch from it in order to patch an old garment, an old piece of clothing. He says, not only will they not match, but as one of the other gospels says, the first time you wash them, they'll pull apart. They, they won't do any good. They'll actually have ruined both sets of clothing. Then he says, let me give you another example. He says, you don't pour, if you're following along, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. You just don't do that. And again, I'm going to talk to you about this in just a moment. But what he's referring to with wineskins, I believe, is inflexible hearts. He's saying what I've come to bring you is something that's new. It's not about all of your right thoughts or all about your performance. It's about your heart. And therefore, if you have a heart that's inflexible and stubborn and based on self-salvation, self-righteousness, self-performance all the time, not only is it a dead-end road, but it'll never work. You'll never be able to pull it off. Now, I don't know. Have you ever seen wineskins? I know when I titled this message New Wineskins, some of you are going, man, Jeff is so into churchy words and stuff like that. What's that about? But this is a really beautiful picture if you'll hang with me. If you've never seen a picture of a a wineskin, here it is. They often took goats, and the skins of goats, and they would skin them, and then they would tan their hide so that it was, again, real soft and shapeable, kind of like some of us have seen with really, really soft leather. And uh, they would take the neck of that in order to be the pouring spout of that. They would tie it, they would sew it, and that way they could pour new wine into these. Why? Because new wine is still fermenting. It's still letting off some of the gases from the grapes and things like that, and so it's expanding. It's expanding. So if you pour it into old wine skins, why will it not work? Because old wine skins have become brittle. They've become, they've lost their elasticity. They can't expand with what the wine wants to do. And what happens is they burst. Now the skins are lost and the wine can't serve the purpose it was made for. So Jesus gives this picture. Now I mentioned in the bulletin column, that I was out in Arizona seeing my parents in the last week or so. When I go out there, they have, uh, again, a mobile home in this retirement park with a couple bedrooms and a couple bathrooms, and so I was staying there, and about midnight, one of the first couple nights I got there, I was brushing my teeth, I was staying up late doing some things, they had already gone to bed, and uh, I got done brushing my teeth, turned off the faucet and everything, and all of a sudden, I hear this sound. And it just kept going, just like that, because I I don't want to keep going. So it made that sound. And I thought, oh, no, I've heard this sound before when I've stayed here before. Some of you know that out in Arizona, because of the desert, there's the contracting and then all of a sudden expanding of different things like that. Rubber tires, also hoses and tubes and stuff like that. So what happens is, is because it's so dry, eventually things crack and you have to replace them. So, I knew that this was happening right below the faucet in the cabinet, below the sink there. So, I opened the cabinet, and sure enough, the cracks below the turnoff valve. So, now I got to wake up my dad and my mom who are asleep, and I got to ask them if they could please somehow turn off the water, or it's just going to continue to run all night. They were actually kind of glad I stayed up late that night because this happens sometimes when no one's around. So, anyway, my dad gets up, he can't find the key at first, more water, and eventually he gets a, he's able to turn it off. And the next morning, he says, That's it. I'm having all of these hoses replaced. It cost some cost money, but he said, You know, because uh, if I ever sell this, I don't want this to happen to someone else. So they came in, and you should have seen the hoses they used. The guy told me that these would last up to 100 years, made out of a different material and everything. They were flexible, elastic, expandable, all that kind of stuff. So the water pressure could, you know, work with it and not blow it apart. And I watched how my dad slept like a baby that next night, see? Because he told me that he'd been worried about this happening because the old hoses do that. Friends, some of us are trying to live the Christian life with old hoses. We're trying to live the Christian life with old wineskins, the heart that we have without Christ. And the Bible says is that Jesus has come not just to give us new wine, but to give us new wineskins to hold that wine in. He wants to pour into. So if you saw that there, you don't pour new wine into. I circled that word into. What makes the life that Jesus offers to us different? It's an inside thing. He doesn't pour it out on us. He pours it into us as well. And so now he changes us. He gives us a new heart. Some of you have seen Ezekiel 36. Um, Ezekiel 36 was an Old Testament prophecy of what God said he was going to do one day when the Messiah came. He says, I will give you a what, friends? What's he say? A new heart and put a what in you? a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He says, so now, so now if you fast or do anything else outwardly, you're gonna be doing it from a different center. It's possible to do all kinds of religious things and do them from a dried wineskin that cannot hold The Spirit's work in your life. It'll just burst it. It's too much. It's too dynamic. It's too alive. And if you and I stay stubborn and say, no, I'm going to do it my way, or I'm going to like only allow God to do this much in my life, oh, he just says, that's trouble. It won't work. And so if you're following along, having Jesus as a bridegroom with us fills us with joy. Having Jesus as a bridegroom with us fills us with joy. You see the picture of the bridegroom? He says, he says are you guys going to make their friends stop while the bridegroom's with them? When he's with them, it's altogether different. It changes everything. It's not grief. It's not mourning. It's not sadness. It's joy. Joy. What's joy? Some of us think joy is happiness. Some people think joy is a feeling. It's not. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. So when you think of joy, that means that it's not based on circumstances. I'll tell you this, friends, the more I live as a pastor, I cannot believe what some of you in our church family have gone through or are going through. I think about how difficult some of the circumstances are in some of our lives. And I'm thinking to myself, if joy is based on having good circumstances, we're in trouble. But if joy is something that we can know because the bridegroom is with us in a different way than religion thinks of it, then there's hope. And joy means that everything you and I face in life, we can say this, for this I have Jesus. There's nothing you and I can't face, so joy isn't always bubbly and happy and stuff, but it's like a quiet river that runs through our lives that brings this kind of, oh my goodness, my biggest problems have been taken care of because he was crushed that I might be accepted. He was forsaken so that I would never be forsaken again for all eternity. And that brings joy, a strange kind of joy that we can know even when life is hard. Aren't you glad Jesus came? Aren't you glad even though they had wrong motives, they questioned him about fasting? But the second thing is they question him about the Sabbath. They question him about the Sabbath. And it happens in two different accounts, but let me just bring it home. The Sabbath, what is the Sabbath? In these next 11 verses, that's what it talks about. If you're following along, the Sabbath means to cease working and the way that it was understood was on the seventh day. So from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, if you're following along. So what happens here is that Jesus is get questioned again by saying, how come your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What were they doing? They were walking through grain fields and they were picking off different pieces of grain. They were rolling it in their hands and then they were eating the grain part that was good for them. And what happened is, is that the religious leaders had developed 39 different categories to define what work is and what you couldn't do. I mean, this is incredible. Let me just read an excerpt for you from Brian Schorberg's message from a few years ago. Here's what they'd come up with. These were man-made now. This is not what God said, but this is how they interpreted. You shall not work on that. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It was forbidden to tie a knot. Please do not tie your shoes today. Light a fire, move a lamp, go on a journey, prepare a meal on the Sabbath. You could pick up your child, but not if they had anything in their hand, because then that was work. I mean, this got really petty. This got crazy. So in the categories, one of the things you could not do on the Sabbath was prepare a meal. You had to prepare it the night before. So you couldn't prepare a meal, and you also could not harvest, and you couldn't thresh or winnow grain. So what that meant was, is that that meant using, that because that meant you were working, you were still doing your job. These were farmers. So when these guys come through, Deuteronomy 25 tells us that you actually could, you actually could, is Deuteronomy 24 or 25, says that you actually could walk through someone's grain field. Again, they didn't have fences and stuff in those days. And you could actually eat some of the grain as long as you didn't use a sickle and as long as you didn't bring a great big basket. Because why? Then you'd be stealing them <laughs> blind. But you could, out of mercy of God, he provided that you could meet your needs that way. So that's what they're doing. They're hungry. They're just doing that. And they go, okay, when you took the grain off the plant, you harvested. And when you did that with your hands, you were threshing and winnowing the grain so that was separating the chaff. And then when you ate it, you prepared a meal. Why are you doing what is unlawful? Don't you think it'd be a blast to hang out with these guys? So Jesus, how does, he, how does he respond? He says, let me ask you a question. He says, have you never read? Now, these were religious people that practically had the Bible memorized. Have you never read? And he points them back to 1 Samuel 21. Have you never read what happened with David and his companions? And he's referring to when David was on the run from Saul. He said how they ate the consecrated bread that was reserved only for the priest. And they received no reprimand from the priest. And that God does not say in that passage it was wrong for them to do that. Why? because they were really hungry and that bread met their need at that point. And it wasn't against God's law because the spirit of the law was for them to know his mercy and grace. Wow. So here's what happened. This is a genius move. Everybody thought that David was the one who prophesied the Messiah and no one was going to criticize their most famous king. So he says, if David did that and you guys are okay with that, Why aren't you okay with this? And also, by the way, you know that I'm the one David talked about. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the rest that God intended for you. I'm the only way you can know the rest. So if you're following along, here's what I want you to see. Once again, the fourth commandment was meant to refresh and remind people of who they are. The reason why God said, I want you to set aside one day out of every seven was not because God was trying to take away people's happiness. He wasn't trying to say, I know you like seven days. I'm taking one away from you. It's not with his heart at all. He goes, look, I know how you're made. And if you just keep running like a machine, you will not do things out of the same center. Therefore, once in every seven days, I want you to stop, cease working, and I want you to be refreshed. And then there's all kinds of good things you can do on the Sabbath. They had turned it into all kinds of things you better not do. But there are still all kinds of things. And then I want you to remember, in Deuteronomy's passage, both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 list the, four, the 10 commandments. And when they list it, they list it for different reasons. In, Deut- in the Exodus count, they actually go back to creation. I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about this is where in, in the way that we count days, it's evening, then morning, evening, then morning. I don't know if you read the Genesis account. God, when he created the world, he said it was evening and then it was morning the first day. It was evening, then it was morning the second day. It was evening, then it was morning third day. When do we start our days, friends? In the morning. When did God start evening? What does that say? That means that we don't work in order to rest. We work from a place of rest. From a place of grace. But they had turned it back where now it's all about what I do for you, God, and then I'll rest. God says, No, 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 no. And God, by the way, did not rest because he was tired. The reason why he ceased working on the seventh day was to stop and say, It is good. The definition of rest is being satisfied with what's been done. And God is satisfied with what Jesus has done therefore he offers us a sabbath rest out of which now everything we do flows out of that rather than working hard for god in order to get the rest from him that we think we deserve what a different what a different thing and also the deuteronomy passage says i want you to do the sabbath in order to remember that you were once slaves by set you free and the reason you had to work 7 days is because you were a slave And if you have to work seven days, friends, you're a slave, God's saying. Therefore, I don't want you to operate that way. I want you to remember who you are. You are my special people. I love you. And I want to refresh you and remind you and renew you so you never forget. Thursday, Chick-fil-A restaurant opened. And I've been there four times. (laughs) And what I want you to know is this. I had a chance while I was waiting in line one of those days to talk to one of the new team members at Chick-fil-A that's part of our church family. And I was talking with him about, you know, taking this job and why he applied for this job. And I said to him, I said, "Uh, isn't it incredible to think that you will never have to ask for a Sunday off? You will always have that. He said, it's probably one of the number one reasons I applied. And I was thinking to myself, how do you have a company that prospers? by honoring God's rhythm. And how much different it is when you and I live out of a place of rest rather than a place of striving and justifying ourselves and all that. Friends, this is what God wants for us. This is what he wanted for them, but they didn't want it. They were like brittle wineskins that go, no, 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 this is the way we're gonna do it. I will prove to God, this is the way we've got to do the Sabbath. And so if you're following along, notice this, that Jesus critics... Made it a list of rules and prohibitions, made it a list of rules and prohibitions. And they were man made rules, by the way, they weren't God's. Jesus never broke God's laws. When people tell me, see, he's encouraging his disciples to break God's law, they're not breaking God's law, they're breaking the man made interpretations of God's law, and they've missed it by a mile. Jesus is standing in a synagogue on the next account. He's honoring God and God's purpose and plan. And if you're following along, notice that in the next account, Jesus invites them to recall God's heart for the Sabbath. He invites them to recall God's heart or the original intent and purpose he had for the Sabbath. So there's this man that's now in this synagogue and he has a shriveled hand. Literally the meaning there is a dry hand. It means that there is no life flowing through it. It does not have the activity and the freshness and the healthiness it was meant to have. And so notice Luke said it's his right hand. And they're watching. This is kind of a backwards compliment. They're watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath because they know he's that kind of good guy. And man, we can't stand that. I just know you'll probably do something good like heal somebody on the Sabbath, Jesus. Wow, do you see how twisted it gets when we become self-righteous? We all become more critical and we all look at things in a twisted way. That's why we need this message. And so Jesus says, hey, stand up. Now let me just ask another question to your question or your critical eye. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? You guys help me out here. You're so so ticked off. You're already thinking I'm gonna heal this guy. And you think that I should wait one more day to do that I'm not waiting one more day to bless this guy. Today's the day. It's always the right time to help somebody. It's always the right time to lift someone up. And I'm going to do that. And so he looked around. No one would answer his question. And one of the gospels tells us he was grieved in his heart by their hardness of heart. By the hardness of their wineskin. And he said, stretch out your hand. And the reason the guy could stretch out his hand It became like, instead of a dry hand, like a balloon filled with air that now was able to turn around and do great good. And that is a picture of what happens when Jesus touches our lives from the inside and fills us. Now everything, including our hands, are free to serve him and to do good. And so if you're following along the notes, having Jesus as Lord frees us to do good in a new way. Having Jesus as Lord frees us to do good in a new way. Now, now, it's not that we still can't fast or set aside a certain day, but now we do it because, because we have, instead of fighting him or trying to prove ourselves or be self-righteous or You'll straight arm him. Now we've come to the place where we humbly say, I know the only way I'll ever really know rest is to surrender to you as the Lord of my life. Because when you're the Lord, you're the Lord of my Sabbath rest. And now what I thought would be the end of my life is the beginning of my life. Now I actually am free to move about and look at people instead of with critical eye and judgmental spirit like I'm so prone to do when I'm caught up in self-righteousness and a brittle wineskin. Now I can look at them with the same mercy and grace that you gave me. Now I can actually do good things and wish well for them just as you wish well for me. Thank you for being the bridegroom who set your heart on me who died and was crushed to pour new wine and give me a new heart so that I could know a new kind of life with you that I never deserved, but I'm so thankful you give. Praise Jesus. He's the one we need. And so here's the closing question, or actually it's just a prayer. Lord, let my heart be like a new wineskin filled with new wine. Lord, let my heart This has really helped me at times, friends, when I've found myself becoming brittle again or stubborn or hardened. I realize that every time the Lord's just saying, you can be the new wineskin of the new heart I gave you. You can be soft again. Some of you, you're trying to live life without Jesus. And can I just tell you, you're living beneath your privilege. That's why he came. Don't miss the bridegroom. Don't do even another day without him. You can actually call on him right where you are today. Call on the name of the Lord and you will not only be saved, you'll have a new heart and one who set his heart on you. Think about what he's saying to you right now for a moment.